our new sermon series. Who's familiar with Angry Birds? That's it? Just raise your hands if, you, if you're familiar with Angry Birds. Okay, so most of us are, which makes sense. Okay. You know, in 2009, some history here, a small independent video game studio in Finland called Rovio, which you saw in there, they're on the brink of bankruptcy. They employ a dozen young people. One of them is the owner's son, and one is his nephew. None of them have any previous corporate experience, but the owner believes in the dream of these two young men, and he invested in it. But still, at the time of their 52nd mobile game, Angry Birds, it was make or break time for the company. And what happened over the following four months in 2009 Angry Birds gets downloaded one million times on the Apple App Store and becomes the next mobile hit. Um, who's played Angry Birds on their phone? Anybody? Or in video games or computer, wherever you play it and so on? Yeah. Uh, the owner of the company, Kaj Head, writes this. Not even I believe this could happen. Yet it did. The Angry Birds mobile games have been downloaded, and this was as of probably 2014 when this was written, um, over two billion times in counting. Now, it's, it's obviously higher than that. They're in the Guinness Book of World Records. Angry Birds has evolved in, from a mobile game into a globally recognized entertainment brand and a pop culture icon. They have birthday parties centered around Angry Birds. you know that? And according to surveys, 90% of Americans are familiar with it. 94% of the urban population in China knows about it. And 60 million out of 65 million inhabitants have played it at least once in South Korea. Merchandise, consumer products of all kinds, books, comics, and an animation series on their own channel, Angry Birds Tunes, which itself has been viewed billions of times by the end of 2013. And of course, it expanded in a few, five years ago, they came out with what? The Angry Birds movie in 2016. Now my question is this, what did these two young boys with no corporate experience whatsoever tap into that made this game so popular? Anger. What is Angry Birds about? Anyone know the, history, the story of it? Well, the birds are angry with the pigs because the, the pigs just sat and ate grass and they noticed that the happy birds with their eggs. And while the birds were distracted by killing a fly that had landed on one of them, guess what the pigs did? They stole their eggs. Yep. Thus, Angry Birds. Now, as mentioned earlier, the owner had low expectations for Angry Birds, and yet it drastically exceeded his expectations. And that's really what I want to talk about this morning, or begin the sermon about, is expectations, particularly unrealistic expectations. Before I do that, would you bow your heads with me? Heavenly Father, as we come before you and open our Bibles, I want to thank you for this time I thank you for bringing everybody here, and I ask that you would use this message for your purposes and for the sake of your glory. In, fa in fact, may 
people not hear my voice, but hear the voice of Jesus Christ. Because I'm insignificant. It's all about you. You are God. I am your creation. Holy Spirit, I invite you to move in the hearts and the minds of everybody here. Speak to us, doing your work, convicting us regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. Build this church up, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thus the term angry birds, and we're going to talk about that and how we deal with conflict. But I want to start out with talking about unrealistic expectations. In the summer of 1996, and I think I've told this story, but if I have and you remember it, be patient with me. If I have and you've forgotten like most of you, then that's great. Maybe I haven't told it. My wife and I, my wife Erica and I, we were assigned to Ocean City, New Jersey for a summer project with Campus Crusade for Christ. Along with the other staff members, we spent, I think it was like six weeks, I think it was, um, building into the lives of roughly 95 college students. And I was assigned to disciple five male students. One of those students was engaged to be married. And during a cloudy afternoon, we were sitting outside on the front porch of the house where the students were staying for the summer. We eventually began to talk about how I met my wife, Erica, and how he met his fiance. And we both kind of laughed as we told similar stories of, of what we looked for in a future spouse and just how unrealistic and quite frankly unbiblical most of those expectations were. A female student overheard our conversation and challenged us about our belief that most everyone has these unrealistic expectations. No matter how we countered each point of her argument, she refused to believe that having those expectations was universal and unhealthy. In other words, not everyone felt this way, and you needed to have those expectations. So, I presented her with a test. I said, I bet that if we walk into the house and approach the first female and ask her what she looks for in a future spouse, she will have a list of traits that are so unrealistic that no man could ever live up to them except for Jesus Christ. She agreed. So the three of us opened the front door, walked into this big living room, and spotted a girl sitting on the couch reading a book. We approached her, and I asked, could you help settle a bet for us? What characteristics do you look for in a, your future husband? And she immediately replied, wait right here, let me go upstairs to my room, I have a 10-page paper of the qualities I look for in my future husband. <laughs> we turned and looked at the girl with whom we had made the bet and helped her pick her jaw off the floor in shock. That's probably one of the few times in my life I'm right, so I like to remember that story and tell it. So, But it got me thinking. You know, relationships are not the only area in our lives where we have unrealistic expectations. I want you to listen. I'm not going to name this author, but listen to what this famous Christian author says about conflict. Christian author, by the way. 
Every person in the world should experience the joy of a peaceful life, but we don't. We are full of emotional bruises, grudges, stress, and unresolved issues in our relationships. But things do not need to be this way. We can take control of damaging emotional issues and restore peace in our lives, friendships, families, and marriages. I mean, that's good, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that statement. There's nothing unrealistic about that expectation, okay? Unfortunately, there's more. We read this. In this book, the author describes the destructive effects that conflict and dissension can have on your life and shows how you, how to recognize and confront it, listen, once and for all. Let me read that again. In this book, the author describes the destructive effects that conflict and dissension can have on your life. It shows how you can, how to recognize and confront it once and for all. So you can deal with conflict once and for all. By following the teaching in this book, you can make a decision today to keep conflict out of your life. I am not making this up. I am reading this to you. Out of your thoughts, words, attitudes, and out of your relationship. Now this reads like a shameless marketing ploy, right? But this Christian author doubles down on a conflict-free life when you read this. What if things could be different? What if every area of your life, yes, even your morning commute, could be free from conflict and strife? She must be the pastor of La La Land, or he must be the pastor of La La Land. What if all your relationships could be filled with love and excitement? And I ask you this question, folks. Is it really possible to have a life free of conflict? And that is what I come to the next point about, yeah, we have unrealistic expectations when we were seeking our future spouse. And we also have been fed the idea that we can have an unrealistic expectation regarding conflict. I'm going to expose what I call the big lie. Common sense tells us that a life free of conflict is nothing but wishful thinking. However, it is my experience that many people, and including Christians, maybe I should say especially Christians, want to believe that this is possible. And we range our lives around avoiding conflict. But why? Well, I think Americans in general have been raised in a country that believes every individual has a right to what? Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But somehow over time, we have interpreted this right to mean a right to a comfortable life relatively free of any conflict. But I don't see this just as an American problem either. I find it's also true during the period of the early church. We read verses in the Bible that talk about a Christian life characterized by what? Love and joy and peace. And we naively assume that that's the normal Christian experience. But when conflict, which comes in various forms, enters our lives, what happens? Well, we're left scrambling to understand just what is going on. And despite numerous warnings written in the the Bible that conflict always, always accompanies following Christ, the early Christians were taken back by surprise when they came upon them. 
In 1 Peter 4.12, it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. See that? I don't think I put that verse up there, did I? No, I didn't. See, God uses conflict to test us. And according to Peter, what I just read, conflict often takes us by surprise. And since we're not prepared for it, what happens? It feels strange, right? And by strange, I mean this. Well, something's wrong, because I should have a life filled with what? Love, joy, and peace. Exactly. Isn't a Christian experience to be primarily one of love and joy and peace? Now, see, we may know better in our minds that our life will not always be characterized by love, joy, and peace. But what I found out in my experience in ministry all these years is subconsciously, we struggle to understand the conflict that we are now wrestling with when it comes into our lives. You see, I fell victim to this type of thinking and naive assumption during my junior year at a high university. Remember my roommate? I think I told you this story. Great guy, believer George Atkins. It was funny because I had had unbelieving, or an unbelieving room at my sophomore year, and George was a year older than me, so I was going to have a Christian room at my junior year. And we got along great, don't get me wrong, but George would eat my food without telling me, and he had a, more of a meal plan than I did. Remember that story? He had 14 meals a week, I had seven, and so I'd have a little refrigerator and some food for me to eat, and he would eat my food, and I'm like, dude, what are you doing, man? And he constantly would do this. He wouldn't give me my messages, and I had a lot of group meetings being a business management major, and oftentimes the phone would ring at five after seven, and he would wake up, say, oh, you've got a meeting at seven o'clock. I'm like, dude, why don't you tell me that? He would eat my food, and he'd, remember he'd eat the, the peanut butter and put that saliva in the and that peanut butter that was on the spoon and set it on my desk and just leave it there and so on. So that stuff, combined with the fact that I had a busy school year, I was taking one extra class a quarter, I was doing 25 hours of ministry, I'd come off a very difficult summer, I was drained. And these things just started grating on me. And I developed within my heart a root of bitterness towards George. And I didn't understand what was going on. I mean, why would it be there? But thankfully, at the very end of the last day that we were together, I just kind of opened up and confessed, and George was very, very... So we should have had this conversation a long time ago. But you see, I assumed that something was wrong, that I was experiencing this conflict. Because I fell prey to the belief that many of us, that conflict is bad. It's to be avoided. It is no place in the Christian life. And like the author I mentioned earlier... I believed the Christian life should be free of conflict and all of our relationships should be, for the most part, filled with love and joy and peace. And so I want to ask you this question, is that belief biblical? This morning we were going to answer this question. I would soon discover that I had fallen victim to a scheme of the devil. And everyone in here has as well. And I was completely unaware of it. Let me show you. Here's a verse. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. In essence, what this verse is saying is that unresolved anger, that's what, do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
there's nothing wrong and nothing sinful about when you're angry. There's a, such a thing called righteous anger, right? But if you let the sun go down your anger, that's unresolved anger, or that is anger gone underground in your heart, i.e. bitterness, okay? If I let the sun go down on my anger, I let that anger sit within me and becomes bitterness in my heart, what happens? Well, I open the door for demonic activity in my life. I give the devil a foothold. You see that? Now, look at this verse. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Why? So that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for you're not ignorant of his schemes. So what's Paul talking about here? Well, he's obviously talking about forgiveness. Namely, if you don't forgive, what will happen? Satan will take advantage of your unforgiving spirit. See that? Does everybody see that? You awake? You hear? Okay. Now, these two verses, Ephesians 4 and 2 Corinthians 2, shed some light on one of Satan's schemes. And folks, we're not to be ignorant of his schemes. And it plays out like this. You're in some sort of conflict. See that? You get offended. Bitterness is the sun going down your anger, unresolved anger, which leads to unforgiveness which then leads to what? You're taking advantage by Satan. And as you will soon see, taking advantage of Satan means that you are used by Satan to do his will. Let me explain the scheme of Satan to you in this way. Look at that picture again. So you have conflict, and conflict comes in various forms. It could be a word that's hurtful. It could be an action. You're in some sort of conflict. You get offended, okay? You don't deal with that offense, or you don't even think it's that big of a deal. And you get angry. And you don't deal with that offense and that anger, and it turns to bitterness, then you find that what happens when bitterness is in your soul or in your heart? Anything that's bitter is poisonous. It, it poisons your heart. It hardens your heart. So therefore, it becomes more difficult for you to forgive, so you become unforgiving. Then you are taken advantage by Satan. So now that you've been introduced to this scheme of Satan, in the lie that accompanies it, what's the lie? Namely, we should experience a comfortable life relatively free of any conflict. I mean, how do you, when conflict comes in your life, when you get hurt, well, however it is, I mean, how do you respond to that? For, I mean, I know that if you've had a lot of conflict, you've probably learned to deal with it in a biblical way, but for most of us, when we first deal with conflict early on in life, it, it's, it's something wrong. It feels like something strange. And Peter's telling us that, that no, this is kind of normal. But if you don't deal with it, you're going to be in trouble. Now, why does Satan want to deceive us regarding conflict? Here's what I want to show you. What I call the certainty of offense. The Bible tells us that it is not possible to live in this world and not experience conflict. 
I want you to look at these uh, one verse in three different versions, because in particular, in this life, you will be offended. It is a guarantee from the Bible. Look at these different translations of the same verse. From the New King James Version, then he said to the disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. So what's impossible? No, no offenses. So, so it's impossible. You're going to be offended. Same verse, translated in the New American Standard, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. So now we know that offenses are what? They're also stumbling blocks. Okay? And look at the English Standard Version. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. So an offense or a stumbling block is what? A temptation to sin. Okay? Now what we see in these three different translations is a different use of the same word. It's a Greek word, scandalon. This is so important you get that, you're going to say it with me. Scandalon. One, two, three. One, two, three. Okay. Now it means an offense or a stumbling block or a temptation to sin. Now since it is impossible to not be offended, to not stumble, or not to be tempted to sin in this world, obviously what always precedes an offense? What, go back. What is this? Conflict. Okay? Why did the birds get angry? Something happened before they got angry. The pigs stole their eggs, right? Conflict? Offense? You get that? Okay? But, folks, watch this. There is more the Bible has to say about the common occurrence of offense. Check this out. You ready? And you, you, you kind of know this stuff, but when you understand it this way, it's kind of eye-opening. Jesus offends. He offended people when he spoke the truth. Listen to this verse. Matthew 15, 12. The disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? So he offended the Pharisees. In other words, he offended unbelievers by speaking the truth. He also offended people by his nature. In Matthew eleven six, 6, it says this, And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let me put this another way. He offended people by his nature. He offended people by his personality, his makeup, who he is. Because pastors deal with this all the time. People come and go, and most of the time they're offended at something that the pastor either says or does, or they just don't like him. They get offended by him, and they move on. That's why there's all this church shopping that goes on. He said this as well about Jesus and his nature. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of what? Stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So Jesus offends, okay? But somehow this Christian author wants you to think you can live a conflict-free life. Guess what? Conflict offends. Just listen to this. In his parable of the sower, remember that story, the parable of the sower? Throwing the seeds out, different soil types and so on. In Mark 4, 16 and 17, it says this. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, 
who when they hear the word immediately receive it with joy and have no root in themselves and so endure for but a time afterward when affliction or persecution arises for the sake of the word immediately they are offended see that so the trials of life the difficulty that comes of being a believer that's offensive and it causes people to stumble again offended they fall away they turn away they stumble so conflict offends guess who is behind conflict in your life and god who was behind the conflict in joseph's life who used his brothers to put him in position in the end to save that family god did And yet you can have a conflict-free life. Obviously, people offend. Believers and unbelievers. In regards to a believer, we are not to be the cause of an offense. 1 Corinthians 8, 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, guess what? To be offended? I'll never eat meat again, so I will not cause my brother to stumble. Okay? And in the last days, offense will be more common in the world and in the church. Because it says this in Matthew 24, 10. And then shall many be offended. Offended again. Fall away. They stumble. They, they turn away. And shall betray one another and shall hate one another. Many will be offended. So despite our unrealistic expectation of our experience of conflict, Despite the lie of Satan that it's better to avoid conflict, despite Satan's scheme to keep us in bondage to bitterness and unforgiveness because of avoiding conflict, the Bible plainly teaches that it's impossible to live an offense-free life. And Satan wants to keep us deceived in regards to conflict for another reason. It's what we call the trap of offense. Remember Luke 17:1? He said to disciples, it is impossible that no offenses should come. Okay? Now, the Greek word for offend in Luke 17:1 comes from the word scandalon. Say it again. Okay. And what it does is this refers to the part of a trap. You have bait attached to a, a trap. Thus, the word implies laying a trap in someone's way, i.e. a snare. And the New Testament often describes an entrapment used by the enemy. Okay? You with me so far? Now, let me give you a visual picture of this. This is really, really simple, okay? So you can take your eyes off your Bibles or whatever you're doing, or you're playing Angry Birds on your phone right now. All right? This is a ba your basic trap, okay? Right? If I can get this to stand up. Okay. This is the trap. There's a simple stick holding up, or in this case a ruler, and there's a piece of meat that's attached to a shoelace. This is the bait. Okay? And what God is saying is offense, or when you get offended, guess what that is? That's the bait. And if you don't deal with that offense, what happens? Well, if I pull this, where are you now? 
You're trapped. You see that? And the book is called The Bait of Satan, How to Escape the Trap of Finch by John Bevere. He got it from this, these verses and so on. But it's really simple. You pull on the bait, you're going to be offended, right? Okay, that was a question I, I expected. A <laughs> yes, you're right, yes. Are you going to be offended? Yes, you're going to have conflict, yes, and you're going to be offended, okay? And what I want you to do, which is why I did this, and I spent a good three minutes figuring this out and putting this together, okay? <laughs> is every time you are offended, I want you to remember this. Because then you have a choice. Either you will take the bait and stay in the state of offense, be entrapped by, caught in that trap, and we'll get into what happens in a minute here, or you need to deal with that offense quickly. I.e., don't let the sun go down on your anger. Okay? Now, I want everybody to look at this verse because this is probably the key verse I want you to see here. Because what happens if you don't deal with the offense? Well, this is Paul speaking to Timothy. And Timothy, unlike this church where there's never any conflict, <laughs> he's got a church that there's a conflict in it. It says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. Why would he say to Timothy, you are the servant of the church, a bondservant shouldn't be quarrelsome? Well, obviously there's conflict, arguing, fighting going on in the church. So the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now this word quarrelsome, it actually means to go to war. So people are fighting in the church. So there's conflict in the church. That's shocking, but there's conflict in the church. And what we know about conflict, it always precedes what? It always precedes offense. See that? Conflict, then offense, right? So people are fighting, and they're becoming offended in Timothy's church. Now look, what is Timothy supposed to do, though? He's supposed to display character that is the opposite of this fighting and offense. He shows kindness, patience when wronged, gently correcting and teaching the opposition. So in other words, he should expect hatred, Right? He should expect injuries or insults. He should expect to meekly interact with those who oppose him. This is how you deal with conflict, right? You're kind, you're patient when wrong, which means you're going to be wronged. You're going to be hurt. They're going to insult you, slander you, persecute you. And you still gently correct and teach the opposition. And I remind you again, where is this happening for Timothy? In his it's in the church. Timothy has to deal with these people in this way in hopes what happens? That God may what? What does the text say? Grant them repentance. 
So there's nothing that Timothy could say or do would change his opponent's mind. See, it's only the power of God that can bring about life change, i.e. repentance. And how does God bring about life change? Through a knowledge of the truth. See that? It's through a knowledge of the truth. This applies that Timothy's opponents are now blinded to what? The truth. They're believing lies. And since the truth means that which is in accordance with reality, they don't have a clear handle on reality. They're not seeing things clearly. Okay? They're in bondage to lies. But if God grants them repentance by exposing the lies they believe, through the revelation of truth, what happens? They come to their senses. They begin to see reality clearly. Okay? But where have they been? In the snare of the devil. What's the snare? Scandal on. Say it. It is this right here. They've been trapped. And how did Satan trap them? Through offense. They didn't deal with conflict properly. They were offended. And they let the sun go down in their anger. Okay? And it gets worse. While in that trap of offense, what happens? What does the text say? They're held captive. And what else? Is everybody afraid or does these three people have voices over here? You do Satan's will. You have to get this. I wish this place were full, okay? Everyone needs to hear this message. I just taught this stuff to the elders about, what, four months ago. It was totally new to them, okay? If you don't deal with offense in your life, guess what, folks? You're in the trap. You're captive by Satan. You're his prisoner, and he uses you to do his will. There is no other alternative. Why do you think there are divisions in churches? They don't deal with conflict, and they're offended, and in an offensive state, they go on. And how do they, they you know, how does, it, how does the division begin in a church? Well, someone is not happy, and they begin to talk. And they begin to slander. And they begin to complain. And they don't like this about the pastor. They don't like this about the church or this and that and so on. Or this person and so on. And it all starts where? It goes all the way back to what? The conflict and the offense. And you simply didn't deal with it. So, let me go back. I mean, see, offense, folks is a scheme of the devil to bring you into captivity to do his will. So I just added this. Con- conflict leads to offense, which leads to bitterness, which leads to unforgiveness, which leads to captivity, which means leads to this. You're taken advantage by Satan. That's another word of saying you do Satan's will. But see, what is even more alarming when you look at these, these verses, is that, if you look at this verse, are these people even aware that they're captive by Satan? They are not. Why? 
because they're in bondage to lies and they cannot see reality. They cannot see the truth. And they do not see the damage they're causing. When a person is deceived, he believes he or she is right even though they are not. Have you ever been in a conversation or in an argument with somebody, been in a relationship where it's just absolutely impossible, reason doesn't work at all? No matter what the scenario is, we can divide all offended people into two major categories. There are those who have actually been treated unjustly. And there are those who believe they've been treated unjustly. Either way, they are offended. And what happens is, obviously, you look at this, their understanding becomes darkened. They lose touch with reality. And once their thinking becomes distorted, they act in ways that are completely out of character. Instead of acting like a child of God, who do they act like? A child of Satan, they're doing his will. And until the offense is dealt with, Satan will keep you in the trap of offense, captive to do his will. You remember the story, I don't have to go into great detail, about that couple from Bowling Green. Real briefly, we, a, a couple that I had worked with in America and I worked with, built into him, discipled him for years. He joined a ministry with uh, Bowling Green Covenant Church, 519 Ministries, and we were serving together. He helped lead worship and, at the church. He led Bible studies, attended prayer meetings, uh, shared his faith regularly, raised up a ministry, he and his wife. Um, the pressures of ministry began to take their toll on them, and she started to offend people, and it got to the point where she needed to just take a break because they were leaving the ministry, going to go to seminary. And so we tried to deal with it. It didn't go well with her, and she exploded. It was this big mess. But what they did is what shocked us, and I You'll understand why in a minute here. I had a meeting with this young man just to smooth things over and, and to work things out. And he kept going to the bathroom every 45 minutes. Well, it turns out he had that tape recorder in his pocket and he was just simply recording everything that we were talking about, asking me to set up questions and had a separate meeting with the students in an attempt to divide the ministry. That's after he had already told the elders that I was spiritually abusing the students. We tried to reconcile with them with the church in a, a failed reconciliation meeting where all they wanted to do was point the finger. They didn't want to reconcile. And I remember what one of the elders told me. He said, we thought this way about this couple. They're leading worship, godly people, and all of a sudden they're acting like this where they're dividing and they were flat out lying and they were deceiving and they were slandering. How do you go from here to here? What's the answer? What's the answer? I'm louder. They're in the trap of offense. They didn't deal with the offense. And we don't know what the offense was, really. I mean, it, 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 what did we do? And they couldn't really give us an answer. It was became apparent to the elders when they were just observing everything that these people, all they wanted to do was throw darts at you guys. They had some serious issues. But you all know people, I'm assuming, that they're godly people. You know them this way. You think of them this way. And they're living this life in a certain way. All of a sudden, they start doing these things. Like, what goes on? What's happening here with you? Well, they had conflict. And 
They probably believed the lie that conflict was wrong, that they shouldn't have it, and they got offended, and they didn't deal with the offense. Now they're captive by Satan, and they're trapped of offense, and they're doing his will. This happens all the time in churches, which is why when someone is in conflict with me, the very first thing I say to them, well, let's get together, let me help you. And they were like, usually like, well, what do you mean by that? Because I know they're offended at something I've done, and I have got to get them or help them get out of this. I don't want to be a stumbling block. They don't know that they're offended, that they're deceived, so I got to get them out of it. Now, within reason. I'm not going to, just because I speak the truth, for example, to offend somebody, there's nothing I did that was wrong. They have to deal with that. It's between them and the Lord. You know, be at peace with everyone to the extent that you can be at peace with them. But we live lives like angry birds. Thus the Angry Birds Sermon Series. You gotta deal with conflict, folks. You gotta know how to deal with it. And I just wanted to kind of introduce everybody to this concept, this is the trap of offense and the lie that you should expect a conflict-free life in the Christian experience. That is the exact opposite. I mean, why in the world would Jesus say in his Beatitudes, blessed is what? You when you're what? Persecuted. I mean, you're, you're conflict again, okay? No, 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 says this author. You got a conflict-free life. What a joke. What a lie. Learn how to deal with conflict. Okay? In fact, I would say this. Embrace it. Because I believe every bit of conflict you have in your life comes from the sovereign plan and purpose of God. And he wants you to learn how to deal with it. Keep short accounts. In fact, I've been so impacted. I mean, my first incident of conflict was the roommate, and it's gone on and on ever since ministry. More conflict in the church, more conflict, more conflict. I know the scheme of the devil now. And so when I see conflict, I wholeheartedly embrace it and deal with it. Because there's things I can learn from it, but I also need to protect the body here from what the enemy is doing. And I used to avoid it, and every pastor always first avoids conflict. But if you don't avoid conflict, it's like cancer. If you don't cut it out, what happens to the cancer? It spreads, and it becomes more of a problem. And the most passive pastor in the world aggressively deals with conflict. They will tell you that, and they learn the hard way. And so, beware of offense. Be aware of it. We'll go into this stuff in so much more detail over the next few weeks. Not next week. I'll be gone next week. I'll be visiting my parents in Ohio. Dr. Tom Hart will be here taking care of this service and so on. But I want you to, to examine your lives and, and look into your hearts. Lord, it, am I offended? Okay? Where are areas in my life where I have some unresolved anger that I need to deal with? Amen? Let's pray. 
Lord, as we close with the song this morning, we want to thank you and worship you and go out with our minds focused on you. I thank you for opening our eyes and exposing the, um, the lies of Satan, his schemes to keep us in captivity to do his will. It's a simple truth. Hurt people hurt people. But yet you call us to rise above the hurt and to reach out despite being hurt in love. That's what you did. Died on a cross, crying out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. They are blind, they're in bondage, they cannot see the truth. And in such great offense, our Lord and Savior forgave. May we be the same. Amen.